Well, it is a joy to gather on these, uh, these days, and again, what a great week celebrating Thanksgiving. So much to be thankful about. At the top of the list, of course, is the fact that Jesus Christ was sent to this earth to atone for our sin, to provide His life as righteousness that would cover us. If that were the only thing that we had to be thankful for, that would be enough, wouldn't it? And yet, on top of that, God blesses us, one blessing after the next, from families to friendship to joy here on earth beyond measure. I'm just, again, as I prayed earlier, I'm, I'm so amazed and so grateful to God that our body here at NBC has, has functioned so healthily, uh, even growing. Uh, I think I mentioned uh, in my prayer, I can't remember, but I think 60 or 70 people have joined our church this year. Uh, it's just absolutely amazing in a year like this, where most churches have seen steep decline in every possible area, God has seen fit to bless us. And again, it's has nothing to do with our innovation or any kind of special thing we've done or promotion. In fact, if anything, we've done less than we ever have. And yet God is glorified to send us all these new folks, and I'm just thrilled to and overwhelmed to thank Him for all His blessing. Well, we've made our way to chapter 16 of Matthew. Chapter 16, please turn your Bibles to Matthew 16. And there today we're going to be studying verses 1 to 12. Another great lesson for us, another lesson of warning. As you remember, this is the second cycle of responses to Jesus' ministry. Back in 14, at the very end, you have a demonstration and some statements of of Jesus' ministry. And then you have responses, a negative response followed by a positive response. We saw last week the the beginning of the second cycle, another demonstration and, and statement of Jesus' ministry followed by what we're studying today, which is a negative response, and what will be next week, the positive response, as we look at the famous confession of Peter. So this is the second cycle. This is the negative response after that beautiful demonstration, the feeding of 4,000 and the statement there before that. And this is what we're going to look at today, this negative response. And it comes from the Pharisees, but also the Sadducees. Let me read these verses to you. Matthew chapter 16, 1 to 12. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread, and Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves or the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
Then they understood that He did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the Word of God. Early in my ministry, I was a church planter. I haven't mentioned it very much from here, but I was a church planter early on. I planted a church in Indianapolis at the behest of the North American Mission Board and uh, the State Baptist of Indiana. Uh, this is, I was a pretty young fellow. This is the late 1990s, and I learned a lot. Sometimes I learned things from very unexpected places. I did receive a stipend from NAM and a little bit of money from my seminary to plant this church. Uh, but especially because I was looking forward to getting married and going on a honeymoon, I, I needed more money. And so one of the things I did there in Indianapolis is pick up a, a job selling ADT home security systems at Sam's Club. I had a booth, kind of like you see at Sam's Club for Sunrun or these other things. I had a booth at the local Sam's Club, and I would go out and I would uh, peddle home security systems and talk to people and set up appointments and, and so forth. So this is what I did, and, and one day I was setting up my booth early uh, before Sam's Club opened, and, uh, and there was another vendor who came sort of the next aisle over and began setting up another booth, although it, was, it looked a little different. I could tell this was not like a professional business like ADT or Sunrun or whatever. This was just like a guy and, and a couple people, and they were they're promoting some kind of ministry. I noticed they were selling like brownies and things like that, and I don't think Walmart or Sam's Club allow these things anymore, but, but he literally was just raising money for some sort of ministry. As a young minister, I was interested. I wanted to know, so I started asking him questions, and, and he said, well, we're, we have such and such a ministry, and uh, our plan is to go to a, a country in Africa. And uh, some of you know, I, my early years I spent in Zimbabwe, and then later on I went back in college and lived there for a while. And so I was interested, what country? He said, Zimbabwe. I said, well, you got to be kidding me. I used to live there. I've lived there two different times in my life. I, I lived in Zimbabwe. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And I began to ask him what he did. And, and it became pretty apparent as I spoke with him, he was not so much interested in sharing the gospel or sharing the scripture to people in Zimbabwe. The, the thing he seemed to be most interested in is sharing the dreams of his wife. His wife had had a series of mystical dreams and revelations, he said, from God. And he said, you know, it's, uh, we want to share these. In fact, we put them in a book, and he, he actually gave me the book that he wrote, but really it's him accounting of his wife's dreams and epiphanies that she had had about the future, about the world, about all these things. And it was very apparent to me, very clear, that they were more interested in these dreams and visions than they were sharing even the, the, the gospel. Well, this is one of the first times as a young pastor that it dawned on me. There's a lot of religious people out there even pastors, even missionaries, even churches, even, dare I say it, whole denominations that are less interested in Scripture than they are of new and amazing revelations, epiphanies, dreams, signs, miracles. They're far more interested, in other words, of things outside of Scripture than they are with Scripture itself. They're far more enamored with the supernatural than they are with what is put down for us that is sure and true. The Bible, it's almost like when you talk to them, the Bible is sort of the boring part that they've already figured out. Now they're on to bigger and better things. Incidentally, about a year later, I picked up the Indianapolis Star, the newspaper, and I read in there that 
Some missionaries from Indianapolis were picked up in Zimbabwe for smuggling arms between Zambia and Zimbabwe, and sure enough, that guy was mentioned. Jonathan Wallace was his name. He was mentioned right there. It seems like religious dreams was not the only thing they were interested in. I think they were interested in some money. Again, what struck me and what continues to amaze me is that there are many, many, many so-called Christians who feel that they have the basics of the Bible down pat. So, in essence, we're sort of done with the Bible. We can move on to bigger and better things. And so, so now their growth, their experience, their Christian walk, everything is defined not by Scripture, not by the truth revealed there. It is by new things, new signs, new revelations. And they focus their attention on signs and wonders and dreams and unbiblical personal revelations. And what's sad is this mentality is not only lured away unbelievers into some bizarre thoughts and ideas, even cult-like beliefs, but this mentality has lured away even true believers, away from Scripture. This this guy, Jonathan Wallace, he, he tempted not just unbelievers and people who were false believers, he tempted, I think, even true believers who wanted to know the truth. There's this obsession with things that are outside of Scripture. There's an obsession with signs and wonders and amazing things rather than with the Word of God. And this is a real threat. It's a temptation, I think, for all of Christians. And it's not just about signs and wonders and dreams and visions. It can be other things as well. And this threat is so great that Jesus took time analyzing this response to His ministry. He he took a few moments, and we read it just a moment ago, he took a few moments just teaching his disciples, warning them about this great threat to their Christian walk. This threat of synthetic, or you might even call counterfeit faith. It's the kind of faith that dominates religion today, and it's the kind of faith that dominated the religious landscape of Jesus' day. The religious leaders in Israel there in the first century had long since abandoned Scripture. They were enamored with all kinds of teachings outside of Scripture. They've been obsessed no longer with the study of the Old Testament, but with all kinds of other things. Had they been obsessed with the Old Testament, when they saw Jesus, they would have concluded the same thing that that Simeon did, right? Right? When Jesus was brought to the temple to be circumcised, and and there was Simeon, a man of of God, a man who was full of the Spirit because he he studied the Word of God. What did he say? He sees Jesus today, my eyes have seen the salvation of Israel and revelation to the Gentiles. He would have seen Jesus, these Pharisees and Sadducees, had they been like him, they would have seen Jesus as who he really was, the Messiah but they didn't. They didn't because, much like my Sam Club vendor friend, had all kinds of other interests, and eventually it was clear they were motivated by sin and even Satan himself. So when Jesus showed up, they didn't respond positively. They responded negatively. They responded with frustration and anger and demand upon Jesus. Nothing would satisfy them. Nothing would satisfy their appetite, you'd think that feeding 40, maybe even 50,000 people out of thin air would have satisfied them. No, they wanted more. You'd think that healing tens of thousands of people for days and days at a time, you think that would satisfy them? No, they wanted more. Why? Because their faith was not a real faith. It was a counterfeit faith. 
So as we look at this negative response to Jesus' ministry, let's mark in our minds and mark in our hearts the threat of counterfeit faith. That's the title of today's sermon, The Threat of Counterfeit Faith. Jesus doesn't get real deep into that, do that, to this. The apostles writing the New Testament will do that later on. But here are some basics that Jesus gives us about false faith or counterfeit faith. What's at the heart of it, and then he gives us the danger or the threat of this counterfeit faith. Counterfeit, again, that's something that looks real but isn't real. At first glance, these religious leaders, they seem like they were true believers. They seem like they were people of the Word. But with just a brief glance upon a little bit further inspection, you find out they're not about the Word of God at all. Kind of like that, you need to do that little thing that people do, the cashiers, right? When you give them a large bill, they pull out that marker and mark it to see if it's real or counterfeit. We need to do that when we come to teachers and preachers. There needs to be at least a little bit of testing, a little check. We shouldn't just drink it in. Why? Because according to Jesus, there's a great threat. There's all kinds of false teachers out there. And we need to be careful. We need to beware. All right, number one, if you're writing things down, number one, counterfeit faith is discontent with God's revelation. Counterfeit faith is discontent with God's revelation. Let me read there again, beginning in verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and they tested him to ask him, to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. They left them and departed. It's interesting to note here, this is the first time we see this unholy alliance of of these two religious groups, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These groups were typically at odds with one another. The Pharisees were sort of the, the, the legalists, the fundamentalists. And these are the guys with the scribes and all the, the rules and regulations about how Jews ought to live their lives. They prided themselves with, with knowledge, and they prided themselves with their strict adherence to all the rules that they had come up with. They presumed, without looking much at Scripture, they just presumed, because of all these laws, they presumed that they were in line with biblical Judaism. They presumed that they were believing what was original, but they, in fact, did not. The Sadducees were the other side of the spectrum. These were the liberals. They did not embrace, for instance, the idea of an afterlife. They didn't believe in eternity or heaven. That's why they were sad, you see. You'll get that later on. They openly rejected most of Old Testament as a myth as something, in fact, they, they, they didn't really consider most of the Old Testament. Most of it was just sort of a myth, a, a fairy tale to them, much like we, we find in liberal circles today, of Christ, liberal circles of Christianity today. It's just sort of a, a, a myth. So maybe you can gather some sort of moral stories, more like Aesop's fables than anything else, just, just sort of a collection of writings and stories that give you some sort of uh, idea of morals, nothing really true there. But they had something in common with the Pharisees. They had a common enemy, Jesus. Jesus threatened them. Jesus threatened their power. Jesus challenged them openly. Jesus demanded that they follow him. Jesus called himself God. 
And they would eventually conspire together with others to, to kill Jesus. Now, here's this conspiracy starting to work together, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and, and they approach him. They're trying to come at him. They're trying to find a way to embarrass him, to, 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 to shame him in front of the crowd and, and, and turn public opinion against Jesus with them. And so on, on several occasions, they, they allied themselves together and, and went after Jesus. And here's an example of one of those times. They come here, they follow, they find Jesus, and they demand a sign from heaven. Now, there's a little bit of a debate here among scholars what, what they really mean, a sign from, from heaven. Does this mean they had none of them, the particular ones who came that time, had never observed or seen any kind of sign, and so they wanted Jesus to, to do another trick so they could see it? Or was it they had seen them, they just wanted something greater, they wanted something better? It really doesn't matter which one you believe. Clearly, what they want is more. The principle is the same. They wanted more. They wanted something that would prove to them, and I don't think they really wanted anything. I don't think they would have believed anything because, again, after all, he'd been, his whole life really was an evidence of the truth. Matthew had gone to great lengths to demonstrate that Jesus was the fulfillment, right? Remember how many times we studied, and this he did, and this he said, and this was done to accomplish, to fulfill what was said in Scripture. Matthew goes on to quote from Scripture. The lineage of Jesus was a fulfillment. The message of Jesus was a fulfillment. The miracles of Jesus, Matthew says, a fulfillment. The character of Jesus, a fulfillment. The Bible is clear. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the fulfillment of these promises. He's a fulfillment of the law. He's a fulfillment of that initial covenant given in Genesis chapter 3. These people wanted more. They wanted something else. They wanted to embarrass him. And so Jesus points this out. He says, you guys make less certain predictions all the time. For instance, with the weather, you look at the sky and make a prediction about what it's saying, the morning, the evening, the redness of the sky. And yet you cannot open your Bible and see clear truth and see that I am the fulfillment. You guys, can't, you guys make all these uncertain predictions, and yet you can't go to something that's certain, the, the Word of God, and, and, and see the truth right in front of you. Essentially, Jesus is saying this has nothing to do with your mental abilities. This has nothing to do with your, your ability to read and understand the Scripture. The problem that you guys have is your heart. You refuse to believe. It's not that you can't understand. It's that you refuse to believe. They're wicked and unbelieving, and so they refuse. It doesn't matter how much he does. They'll never believe. They have abandoned the one true God. They do not believe His Son. These are people who look on the outside. The most religious are indeed the furthest from God. They are counterfeits. And then Jesus says something that He said earlier, and we studied this back in June out of Matthew chapter 12, but since Jesus repeats it, I think it's, it bears a reminder. Jesus says, no sign will be given to you and the rest of the nation of Israel, that generation, except the sign of what? Jonah. What does that mean, the sign of Jonah? Well, let's try to remember. Back in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that He would send a Savior, a man from God who would be an offspring of woman, 
He would be God Himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And that Savior would deal a death blow to Satan and redeem mankind, provide redemption for people. He would deal a death blow to Satan, reverse the curse in humanity, and the world would be saved. As time moved forward, we learn, especially in Deuteronomy 18, we learn that, that, that God was going to send several men. Usually they fell in the category of a prophet, a priest, or a king. God would send these men as, as spokesmen, as representatives of God. And, and those men understood that their job was twofold. One, it is to speak on behalf of God. Some of them not only spoke but wrote on behalf of God. And the second thing was to model the coming Messiah. That was their job. Sometimes we call these prophets, priests, and kings types of the Messiahs or foreshadowing the Messiah. And that's how they communicated God and God's truth and God's word and God's promise about the Messiah to the people. They would, they would preach to the people the word of God, but they would also model in their lives the coming Messiah. David understood this. You read Psalm chapter 22 and These things were indeed true of David, but it's clear there as you read that that David was looking forward, anticipating someone who would would be like him, only so much greater, only the true Messiah. He knew in a way these things were about him. The same thing with Isaiah as he writes the servant songs in in the book of Isaiah, and, and, and he understood these were about him. In some sense, they were about the people of Israel, but ultimately, the servant was the Messiah, And you can see him pointing to this as you read those chapters in the book of Isaiah. They're sort of pre-modeling the Messiah, not just preaching, but pre-modeling the Messiah, even if they were doing it imperfectly. Now, these principles are helpful. helpful. This idea is helpful to just interpret the Old Testament as you read the Old Testament and and wonder why uh, Jesus can refer to some of those chapters in the Old Testament as being about himself. Well, they believed it was about the Messiah as well. And so they wrote that in those ways. Jonah was also one of these prophets. He was in a perfect one, like the rest of them. He was a failure. All of them failed in some way or another. But he knew, as all good Jewish people knew, he knew that not only would he preach the truth, he would also be a model of the Messiah. The Messiah being without sin and him being with sin, he would nevertheless model the Messiah. And you remember the story of Jonah, right? Jonah and the whale, Jonah, the great fish. Jonah was called by God to go and preach the gospel, preach the truth to the people in the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, and he was was supposed to go and preach to these very wicked people, and he didn't want to go there. He was a racist, so he tried to go in the other direction. God put a great storm on the ship that he was on. The people got scared. They threw him overboard. He got swallowed by a great fish. For three days, he suffered down in the belly of that fish. And this has actually happened in modern-day times. We know that this is possible. And you can just imagine him down deep in that fish getting pushed around. It's not like he was in this big cavern like your childhood painting of Jonah and the great fish. He was smushed around with all kinds of whatever thing that fish was swallowing, all kinds of junk and stench. And Jonah knew he was dead. Jonah knew this is, this is not a good ending. He'd eventually drown or die of, of no air. It'd take some time. Maybe there's oxygen. Being a mammal, these, these fish would have oxygen somewhat, but eventually he would die. He would be digested. And we've seen, even in modern days, men who've been swallowed by great fish and coming up a day or two later, and their skin is all bleached by the stomach acid. This would have been Jonah. 
Jonah knew he was destined for death. This was death for him. And he was down there for three days. And eventually God spoke to that fish. That fish spit him up. He came up on the beach and he preached the gospel to the people of Nineveh. Now, this is the sign of Jonah. Now, the people of God reading that would understand that Jonah not only preaches truth, but he also, in some way, maybe not they wouldn't understand how, but they would know in some way he's modeling the Messiah. He's modeling the coming true prophet of God, the Messiah. Back in chapter 12, Jesus tells us, at least in one way, how Jonah modeled him. He said, chapter 12, verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so, This is at least one way in which Jonah models Jesus. He basically went down to the depths of death. Jesus, in fact, would truly die and be buried. Now, what's he saying here in chapter 16? The very same thing. Very simply put, he is saying, I'm not going to jump around and do signs at your behest. I'm not going to, you know, you tell me to dance, you tell me to do this, play a song, do this, do a little dance. I don't operate like that. I will give you the sign of Jonah. You just wait. You guys are going to kill me, and I will go down to the grave, and three days later, I will rise up. And not only will I I preach, but I'll send my people, and they will preach as well. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign, the sign of Jonah. Well, the lesson we draw from this this morning is the same as what we saw in chapter 12, to, to follow the sign of the Savior, but reject, don't be obsessed with all these other signs and wonders. Look to the things that Scripture says about the Messiah. Don't be obsessed with things that are outside of the Word. Look to Scripture. Look to the truth of Jesus Christ, not to all those bizarre things that people say that you don't find in Scripture. Upon seeing those things, believe, repent, or if you're a Christian, grow in your faith, mature, grow in confidence and maturity. Our objective is to be obsessed, but not to be obsessed with signs and wonders, but to be obsessed with Jesus Christ and the truth of Christ. Don't be discontent with the Word of God. People are discontent all the time. I can't help but think about so many modern churches today, they're so... They're so bent on making people entertained. One of the leading preachers in the modern movement calls it entertainment, I-N-N-E-R. Sunday morning is a time of entertainment. Why? Because people don't don't like just plain Bible teaching. What did Paul say? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I didn't come with you with plausible words of wisdom. I came with you just plain, boring teaching by the world standard. I could have employed all this entertainment value but I came to you with plain gospel preaching. Why? Because I want you to know that your faith does not rest in some kind of experience that I have produced, but it rests in God alone, that God alone has done this. Don't be discontent with the Word of God. Find in Christ, find in the Word of God all your hope, all your faith, all the truth. False believers, counterfeit Believers, counterfeit faith is, is enamored with all this stuff that sounds spiritual, that looks spiritual, that, that is painted beautifully, but is not, in fact, God at all. It's not the truth. True believers are obsessed and satisfied and content with what God has given us in the Bible. 
Oftentimes from this pulpit, I quote James 1.18, talks about how God saves a person. He saves us. He calls us forth by what? The word of truth. The Bible, the truth of God's word awakens us. This is God's word. It's like, like when Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth, right? The Bible comes to us. It awakens us. And maybe it's not just Bible reading, but someone sharing the gospel or reading a track or something like that. But, but the truth of God's word comes to us. It awakens our souls. It's as though God is saying to your soul, come forth, and we are spiritually resurrected. I've also quoted very often John 17, 17. Jesus says, sanctify them. That means mature them, grow them, give them, give them maturity, spiritual maturity. Sanctify them by the truth. And then he, what does he say? Your word is truth. So how is a Christian saved? By the word of God. How does a Christian grow? By the word of God. We're saved and sanctified by the word of God. And then we, we're going to read tomorrow in the main service. We're going to read... 2 Timothy chapter 3, 17, right? It says God equips adequately the young man for every good work. How does he do it? By the Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out. The Word of God is what equips us. It prepares us. We don't have to look elsewhere. We don't have to look at dreams. We don't have to look at miracles. We don't have to beg for signs. Can God do what He wants miraculously? Sure He can, but that's not what we should be obsessed with. Our preachers... And denominations and movements obsessed with these things? You better believe it. I mean, you don't have to look very far, do you? I mean, when was the last time a burrito came out the shape of Jesus, right? And then you have thousands of people crowding around the little lady's house in Puerto Rico or wherever (laughs) trying to look at this. They're enamored not with stuff in the Bible. They're enamored with the burrito. Think about all the people obsessed with miracles and signs and wonders, and they really don't know much about the Bible, but boy, they... They heard someone speak in tongues. Boy, they saw this miracle. Boy, they they don't really know much about truth. But we're saved and we're sanctified and we're kept and we persevered and we endure by the truth. That's the first lesson. These counterfeit believers are out there. They look real. They seem real. They're attractive. But they're not. Of course, Satan close himself as an angel of light. Why? To deceive us. That's the first thing. Number two, you can write this down. Counterfeit faith is dangerous even for true disciples. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't get his disciples and say, oh boy, those guys are crazy, but you don't have to worry about them. You're, You're real. You're true believers. Immature Christians, I have found, immature Christians sort of assume that once they're in, they don't have to worry about it. I think their faith is sort of impenetrable. Mature Christians are the ones who have the humility to know that at any moment they're going to fail. They need to always be on the alert. They, they know that they're prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love, right? They never let their guard down. And Jesus here is teaching his men, you need to, to keep your guard up. This counterfeit faith is, is dangerous. Look at verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus says to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the disciples are thinking he is talking about something about he, they forgot to bring the bread. And Jesus says, you guys, don't you know that I can create, bre- create bread out of thin air? I mean, didn't you just see these miracles? Don't worry about bread. I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. 
Beware, verse 11, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they understood. He did not tell them to beware of leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I think we sometimes we, we give the disciples a hard time. They, they sort of look stupid here, bumbling around, getting the wrong point, forgetting that Jesus had done these great miracles. Someone said of the apostle Peter, Peter's the guy that when Jesus stopped in the middle of the Rome, Peter would run into the back of Jesus. Oh, oh. Sort of a Homer Simpson of the disciples. But I think Peter, really the reason we have Peter is he's just sort of representative of what all the disciples were like in their hearts, in their you know, if he was saying what they were thinking, he was doing what they were wanting to do. The truth of the matter is, all the disciples are representative of us. Don't think for one second you'd have been of any better disciple than any of those guys. We'd have made the same mistakes, and the threat was just as real, is just as real, probably more real to us than it was even for those men. Here they had forgotten to bring bread, but the greater thing they had forgotten was the actions and teachings of Jesus was the lesson of Jesus. And so Jesus says, guys, it's not about food. I can make bread out of thin air. I'm talking about spiritual leaven. I'm talking about false teaching. The attitudes, the false teaching, the pride, the drifting eyes, the spiritually adulterous actions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees can threaten your faith and cause you to stumble. Again, Satan does not pose himself what he is, a a ravenous wolf, a a lion seeking who may devour. No, he poses himself as an angel of light. He's looking to deceive you. This negative response to to Jesus' ministry, Jesus is saying here, this is a threat to you guys. Be warned. Take heed. Take heed. Be careful. Be on the alert. Don't be arrogant. Don't let your guard down. Ladies and gentlemen, we are told all the time that that the kind, the generous, the warm thing to do as a Christian, the loving thing to do is to never show any kind of discernment or judgment against anything. Just drink it in. If it's billed as a Christian book, then it must be good. If it's a Christian song, then I I must be permitted to listen to it. If it's a Christian movie, a Christian TV preacher, it must be good. I I should just drink it in. Surely I can learn, learn something about it. Don't judge it. Be loving. But Jesus is saying the opposite here. Be warned. Be careful. Be wary. Be on the alert. Be discerning. And we learn this back in Matthew 7. When Jesus says, do not judge, he's not saying don't don't show any discernment, don't have any judgment. He's saying don't have a judgmental attitude towards others. And you don't have to have a judgmental attitude and show good judgment, right? You can be a kind, warm, good person and not be judgmental. You can have good judgment and not be judgmental. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Show good judgment. Be discerning. Be obsessed with the Word of God. Don't be obsessed with all this other stuff. Don't don't just drink it in because it says Christian across the top of it. I'll tell you something, a little illustration here. At the founding of of Mormonism, Mormonism, Joseph Smith declared in uh, one of his writings that all Christianity is an abomination. Every denomination, every church, every preacher, all of it, he said, God had told him is an abomination. It's false. And so for for decades, the, the Mormon church... 
over 100 years, the Mormons refused to call themselves Christians. In fact, most of my life, obviously most of your lives as well, Mormons refused to call themselves Christians. They did not want to lie. They, they went along with Joseph Smith's teaching about this. They did not want to be considered Christians because Christianity was an abomination according to Joseph Smith. But this has changed today. Has, have you noticed this? This has changed. Why? Because Christians are known far and wide to accept everything with the title of Christian across it. So in order to lure Christians in, all the Mormons, the Mormons have realized all we need to do is sort of shift our identification. Let's just pose ourselves as just another Christian organization, just another option for Christians. In order to lure Christians in, all they need to do is make a little, little bit of a shift in what they advertise themselves as. If they advertise themselves as, as sort of a, a brand of Christianity, then Christians will fall for it. Now, do they accept any of the basic Christian truths? Not at all. They reject the Trinity. They reject the atonement. They reject salvation by grace, not works. They reject Christian canon of Scripture, the Bible. And they may say, oh, I believe in the Bible. I believe, they usually say, I believe in the King James Version of the Bible. I'm not sure why they stuck themselves to that, but they say, I believe in the King James Version of the Bible. But again, as I've noted before, what they believe more than the Bible is they believe the Book of Mormon. They believe the writings of Joseph Smith. They're not Christian at all. But they've realized the great marketing potential among Christians because Christians are weak. They're not on guard. They're not alert. They're not paying attention. And so if they can pose themselves as another version of Christianity, and really just another option, another denomination, then they can draw people in. So they've actually turned against Joseph Smith's practice of, of openly rejecting Christianity in all Christian language. Why? They pose themselves as light. They pose themselves as positive. You say, Pastor, well, I'm not going to fall for, for Mormonism. Well, okay, maybe not Mormonism. But did you know if you start to compare some of the most po popular Christian books to Scripture and look at the world around you, what you'll find is Doctrines from the New Age movement, doctrines from Christian science, doctrines from Scientology, doctrines from paganism, doctrines from Buddhism, doctrines from Hinduism, all injected into these so-called Christian books. These books, these movies, these preachers, these are things with which Christians spend billions of dollars every single year. Now, God's had mercy on this. I think we're finally done with all the heaven tourism books. But what was in them? An explanation of what the Bible, how the Bible describes heaven? No, it's some guy's experience, some person's experience. Sometimes they've come around and realized these are false experiences. They've admitted. And yet people are obsessed with these things that are outside of Scripture, not what's inside Scripture. And then, of course, if you compare a lot of these things that they say about heaven to what Scripture says, it contradicts Scripture. Not only do they contradict one another, they contradict Scripture. But again, these things sold like hotcakes for about 10 years. Every Christian, oh, we had to watch the movie, we had to read the book, we're just enamored with all this stuff, and not one, of, not one bit of it is in the Bible. Christians did Bible studies based on these things, and instead of the Bible, they studied... Some guy's false vision. Jesus says, watch and beware of the leaven, folks. It's a lesson of humility, I think. 
It's a lesson to, to realize that any one of us can be deceived at any moment. A prideful person assumes they've got it all settled, they've got it all figured out, their doctrine is all perfect, and they don't have to worry about anything. Oh, I know all that. And Jesus says, beware. Turning away from me, turning away from truth is not just a, a vocal repudiation of Jesus. It's also a slight drifting out of Scripture, away from truth, into false teaching. A humble person accepts this threat. A humble person constantly, fervently, relentlessly focuses on knowing the Word and finding greater commitment and greater understanding of the truth of Scripture. Oh, what a great lesson for all of us, right? Another negative response, and Jesus turns it into a moment of teaching for His disciples. Yeah, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they, they don't come out and say, hey, we reject Jesus. No, they just say, we just want to see more. Just give us something else. So let's guard ourselves against this prideful attitude. It is from the good book, the Bible, which is ultimately the revelation of God, revelation of Jesus Christ, where we receive all we need pertaining to life and godliness. Let's pray that God will give us these desires. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Help us to be discerning. Help us to be discerning in these days, Lord. I know that especially as, as we age and get older, there's more time to, to read and to study and to watch. And Lord, I pray that we would not just drink in anything that seems appealing, it seems spiritual, but we would compare it to the, the truth of Scripture. Lord, give us discernment. Give us eyes that would see Make us obsessed with the Word of God, with the person of Jesus, not with all these other things. Protect us, dear Lord. And I pray always for those, maybe even like the Pharisees, who are so religious, who like religion, who are positive about religion, and yet they never have received Christ because they always want more. They always want more. They always demand more. I pray, Lord, for anyone in this room or who's watching, I pray that they would repent of that attitude, turn to Christ be saved today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.